What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Insider spent 18 months investigating the murders of 175 transgender people over the span of five years, resulting in a published series called Deaths in the Family. They found that the murder of trans people has doubled over the last three years. Only three of these murders were charged as hate crimes. Only 28 cases resulted in murder convictions. Our first guest is Matt Drange, a senior correspondent based out of Insider San Francisco Bureau. His contribution to the Insider series is called They Called 911 for Assistance, Then Police Used lethal force. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Kat. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show and for, for, for your piece. It was very um, moving. Um, I want to start the way that you start um, your article. Tell us about Jane Thompson. Absolutely. Um, so Jane Thompson was one of uh, five transgender people that um, I looked at uh, uh, the life and death of pretty closely. Um, Jane was a uh, transgender woman um, who uh, lived in Arizona um, for much of the pandemic um, and uh, was working at a bar in town um, that uh, her boss described to me as, as sort of a, a blue dot in a sea of red um, in Arizona where um, uh, folks were generally more accepting of, of transgender people. Um, and when Jane left um, in uh, April or May of, uh, of 2020, she wound up in, in Colorado, which is where she had her confrontation with law enforcement. And can you walk us through that confrontation? Uh, she was walking down the street and what happened? Mm hmm. Uh, absolutely. So, so what happened is Jane was actually standing at the the side of a busy intersection in rural Colorado, um, in Grand Junction, um, and uh, several uh, witnesses um, uh, called nine one one and thought that Jane was perhaps a mannequin. Uh, she was standing so so still. Um, uh, when in reality, she was just standing there on the side of the road, not of course a mannequin. Um, and uh, a, a state trooper showed up, uh, Jason Wade, um, and the confrontation quickly became uh, violent within seconds. Um, um, and uh, uh, Wade approached Thompson, um, and in, in his telling, she had a, uh, a, a knife. Photos from the scene showed a sort of what, what might look like a, a vintage um, type of knife, not something that you would typically see, almost like a prop. Um, and in the trooper's telling, Jane pulled that knife, <clears throat> and uh, within, within about, I think, 11 seconds, um, he shot her dead, I think, uh, uh, five or six times. You mentioned something in the article called the 21-foot rule. Can you walk us through what that is and how it played in the defense of Officer Wade? Certainly. So the 21-foot rule um, is really sort of a misnomer. It's, it's not so much a rule as, a, um, I, I don't know if you would call it a, a, a training module, perhaps, for law enforcement. And what it means is um, if a, a subject, a person, has a knife, and uh, are within 21 feet of that officer, they could conceivably draw that knife, charge the officer and attack them before the officer could draw their gun and shoot them. Um, but this, again, I'm using sort of, you know, air quotes here, this rule has been widely uh, debunked. Um, it, it really lacks um, any kind of context about the terrain, the situation, the person, how, how able-bodied they are, et cetera. Um, and so the trooper in this case, uh, Jason Wade, cited this rule in his interview with 
investigators um, later that day after he killed Jane Thompson. Um, and uh, the investigator made a note of it in the file. And, and uh, so we talk about it in the story. But um, again, it's really it's, it's not so much a rule as something a lot of uh, uh, law enforcement are taught. And even some departments now are, are sort of coming to the conclusion that, you know what, maybe we, we shouldn't be teaching this. Maybe this isn't a very good uh, uh, you know, uh, policy for our officers. Is it sort of like the the training the officers get when they, you know, murder folks in general, the I feared for my life sentence to make sure that that gets in the report? Would you make a similar comparison with this 21 foot air quotes rule? It is, it is very similar. Yes. And, and in fact, in, in um, all of the cases that we looked at, so Jane Thompson was one of five um, in in, uh, in four of them. Uh, that the victim had a knife on them. And that kind of comment, you know, I feared for my safety, I feared for my life was made by the officer in each case. You looked, we're going to talk about some of the other cases you go into depth uh, around in your article, but of the five, uh, across the five cases that, that you spent time with, what were the patterns that you saw emerging in terms of law enforcement engagement with trans folks? Absolutely. So I think, you know, Jane Thompson, uh, her, her case really hit on, on a lot of them, but the, the biggest one, uh, was, was really quick, uh, to act. You know, most of these, uh, situations took place in a matter of seconds, um, and unfolded and, and, and progressed really, really rapidly to the point where, you know, the experts that we, um, ran the, the, the findings by and the, the basic contours of each case, was was really remarkable. Um, so I think the speed um, in which you know people were were officers, you know, as we say in the in the headline, as, as you mentioned, you know, officers were called for help and they quickly uh, turned to deadly force um, was was one big theme. Um, another big theme uh, was was mental health. So you know, Jane Thompson. Um, we haven't talked about yet, but, you know, was really dealing um, as, as best as we can tell from talking with everybody who knew her at that time um, with a lot of, of trauma and abuse and um, was had spiraled into a deep depression. Um, it's unclear if, if the Colorado trooper knew any of that, but, you know, the fact that um, passersby thought Jane might be a, a mannequin, you know, kind of indicates the, the mental state that she was in. Um, exactly. And we have, we found similar um, types of, of situations with with the other cases we looked at too. You know, so Scout Scout Schultz, uh, the non-binary um, student at Georgia Tech, was in the midst of a, of a suicidal crisis and had left um, suicide notes. Um, Tony McDade, a trans man in Tallahassee, Florida, um, also similarly dealing. You know, his, his mother said he was suicidal. You know, tried to tell the police, "Hey, he's suicidal. He's suicidal." Um, and Sean Hake, um, an, another case that we looked at in, in rural Pennsylvania. Um, who was uh, just about to get an appointment that week um, that he was shot killed for, for gender affirming surgery. And he too uh, was dealing with a, 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 a mental health episode with his mother. Um, and so in each case, you had these, these people who were really in a, in a quite vulnerable state um, colliding with law enforcement at the, at the worst possible moment. One more um, element of the Jane Thompson case, and then I actually do want to move on to the Sean Higgs story. So she was shot by Officer Wade. Other officers arrived on the scene. Did anyone render her aid? And if not, what happened instead? Yes. So, so no, no, excuse me. No, no one rendered her aid. Um, and in fact, uh, several minutes passed. Um, and we, we can we know all of this because of the dash cam footage that we obtained um, which is one of uh, thousands of public records that we obtained for this story um, and this series of stories. But what happened was um, uh, several other uh, uh, colleagues of the trooper showed up. 
Um, and they weren't sure if Jane was still alive, but instead of render her aid, what they did was they fired a, uh, a 40 millimeter uh, beanbag round, you know, less lethal round, as it's often referred to, um, at Jane's leg in an attempt to determine if she was still alive, um, which, again, you know, the experts that we ran that by and showed that video to thought was was really remarkable and um, not something that, that law enforcement are, are trained to do or, or should have done. You know, it was, it was clear Jane was on the ground. Um, she had been shot several times. Um, it was clear that she was either <clears throat> dead or, or close to death. Um, but instead, they, they sought to shoot again at her. It reminded me um, of Kayla Moore, who was the trans woman who was murdered by the Berkeley police in 2013 and had law enforcement given her um, C- you know, CPR, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. She might have lived and they refused to do so. Mm. Um, Mm. The the denial of the humanity, right, of the folks mm-hmm. that law enforcement um, that that they end up murdering. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's move Absolutely. on to Sean Hake, uh, twenty three years old. Tell us his story. Yes, yeah, so Sean Hake um, was a trans man in Sharon, Pennsylvania, um, and uh, like I mentioned, you know, was really on the cusp of of uh, uh, transitioning and, and had actually posted on Facebook and shared. Uh, this appointment that he had scheduled um, uh, for gender affirming surgery. Um, and similarly um, to Jane was dealing with a lot in his personal life. Um, uh, law enforcement had um, interacted with Sean previously um, and, and knew that he, um, uh, you know, was a, the term that law enforcement uses is a mentally disturbed person um, I'm using air quotes around that, but you know, knew that, that Sean was struggling. Um, and when Sean uh, got into a dispute with his mother um, in early 2017, um, she called uh, the Sharon police to respond to the scene for help. Um, and when they responded to um, her home, uh, they confronted Sean outside. Um, he was sitting in a car with a, a box cutter, just a little you know, blade, um, kind of exacto knife, if you will, um, and uh, had been cutting his wrist. Um, and so again, very obvious, you know, with the context leading up to the, um, incident and the event and, you know, just seeing, right. As a human, if you see someone with a box cutter and they're bleeding from their wrists and, you know, you're told that there's a domestic dispute, you can probably put two and two together that this person is suicidal. Um, and within seconds, there are three officers at the scene. Um, they were yelling at Sean to drop the, the knife, um, drop the box cutter. And when Sean refused and he, he you know, he, he, he basically, and the officers telling challenged them and said, you know, F you shoot me. Um, the officers, uh, killed, uh, Sean, uh, very quickly and did not attempt to use any less lethal force, a taser, for example, which, um, the experts we talked to said would have been much more appropriate in that, in that context. I, I do just have to throw in, right, because we do call them less lethal, uh, less lethal options for law enforcement. The reality is tasers kill people, too. There was just a murder of a black man in Venice, California. He was tased to death. I just want to put mm. put that in there because mm-hmm. the other thing mm-hmm. that they could do is wait. Right. Mm-hmm. Wait, de-escalate and talk. Right. Um, maybe no weapons are needed in some of these cases with folks that clearly are in need of help. In Hake's case, an expert report was prepared for the family by a former police officer. What did it say? 
Yeah, so the expert report found that the use of force was uh, totally uh, unjustified and unnecessary. Um, and, and to your point, similar to Jane Thompson, um, raised the same same question, why not just wait? You have three officers on the scene and there's there's one person who's dealing with the situation. Um, why the speed? Why, why did this unfold so, so quickly? Um, and so that expert report played a, a key part um, in Sean's uh, family's uh, uh, wrongful death case, um, which they settled out of court. Did you speak to Hake's mother directly? I did not. No, I did not speak to the Hake's family. I, I don't think they were um, interested in that, but I did speak with their family's attorney. Um, murder is, of course, uh, the Matt, the, the most extreme kind of outcome uh, when these tragic collisions happen. But what other ways did you find that trans engagement with law enforcement could be violent? So we, we looked at, uh, quite again, quite a lot of cases um, and, you know, of the 175, uh, in fact, in our overall series, and many of them, um, folks uh, had interacted with law enforcement previously um, and had, you know, in situations that had turned violent, whether it be, um, you know, a, a violent uh, arrest or detainment, um, you know, uh, folks like uh, Tony McDade uh, in Florida had, had interacted with law enforcement uh, many times previously. Um, and we looked at that context for a lot of these killings and the role that that played um, and, and ultimately found that, you know, looking at a lot of uh, research and data and talking to experts that folks who had interacted with law enforcement um, were actually more likely to have these types of situations where they then are killed by law enforcement. Um, so even, you know, in the trans community, just dealing with a, a police officer at all, uh, many people uh, find is, is, you know, completely uh, unnerving on, on every level. Right. Matt, we've spent a bazillion dollars in sensitivity training, cultural competency training, body cameras, blah, 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 blah. It has not worked. The, uh, you know, not for trans folks, not for black folks, not for brown folks, not for indigenous folks, not for poor folks. Um, the experts that you spoke to about what needs to change or how we interrupt um, this epidemic of police violence, what did they say? You know, I, I think that one of the things that, that stuck with me the most, Kat, is just this this idea. It sounds very simple when you say it aloud, but when you look at all of these cases, it was, was clearly lacking. And that is police showing up to the scene uh, for, you know, for being called for help need to convey that they are there to help. Um, it's that simple. And, and in these cases, that just didn't happen. Um, you know, these people are, are uh, dealing with a lot. They're in the midst of a lot. Um, and yet it's this confrontation instantly, this confrontation, guns drawn, life or death right away. Um, and so that idea that that fundamental concept, which is that law enforcement is here to protect and serve and help, uh, was really lacking. And so it's not, it doesn't seem to be anything really that complicated. You know, the experts I talked to didn't bring up, um, you know, uh, uh, wholesale reforms or, or things like that. It was really just to, to do your job uh, and to help the people that you're um, in supposed to help. And I'm going to push here a little bit, of course. Maybe that's not their job, right? I mean, we see programs, shameless plug, like APTP's Mental Health First um, and other programs exploding across the country where it's actually community responding to community crisis that perhaps we don't need to send badges and guns to folks who need care and compassion. Matt, um, out of all of the cases that you covered a, was there any accountability for any of these police officers? And B, um, did did any of these tragedies result in any type of, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, reform? 
So as far as accountability for officers, uh, no, not not that we can tell. Uh, certainly no officers were, were charged, as we see in this story. Um, and none appear to have been disciplined either, as best we could tell. Um, and, you know, even in the cases where there was some ultimate um, change, some real change that happened, like the Scout Schultz case, um, which we can talk about, um, the officer in, in that case um, said that he, he when he, uh, quote, apologized to the family. He said he was sorry that he was put in that situation, not that he was sorry that he killed Scout Schultz. Um, but so so I think the officer accountability, as we say, was 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 definitely lacking um, as far as, um, you know, any any kind of change after um, the person was killed. I think Scout's case probably does have the most um, So Scout's family. Um, again, this was a, a non-binary Georgia Tech student, um, very bright, um, top of their class, was a leader in the, um, the, the LGBTQ community there in the student group on campus um, and was killed by a campus police officer who did not have, was the only officer who responded to that situation without crisis intervention training, which um, became a key part of uh, the lawsuit that Scout's family filed, which settled. Um, and uh, on campus, the LGBTQ group that Scout led uh, received additional funding after that. Um, officers now at Georgia Tech all carry tasers. Um, I, uh, and uh, there were also changes like a, uh, a, I guess you would call it a mural. Um, the uh, steps leading up to the building where Scout uh, studied uh, were, were painted in a rainbow mural. So there was a visual component to that as well. But I think a lot of people, even in that case where you had these various changes, thought that, that wasn't enough. All right, Matt, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kat. Great to be here. Matt Drange is a senior correspondent based out of Insider's San Francisco Bureau. His contribution to Insider's series on violence against trans people is called They Called 911 for Assistance, Then Police Used Lethal Force. Insider investigated five murders of transgender people by police. None of the officers who pulled the trigger were charged. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.